We've been uh, in a different place. We've been talking about discipleship and uh, commitments with regard to that for the last 10 weeks. And uh, we're done with that mini-series, but we're not done with discipleship. Uh, we hope to kind of go back to those commitments periodically, remind ourselves of those things. And what we're hoping to do is uh, rethink some of what we do, uh, evaluate what we do uh, in light of all of those things, and hopefully become more effective in how we go about discipling the people that are here at Desert Springs. Uh, now, that means we're returning to Mark. And we had uh, left off at uh, sort of what I call the hinge of the whole gospel of Mark. And we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And while we could read further and uh, it builds on this idea, we're going to stop here for today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son, who has also made purification for our sins and is now seated at your right hand. As we hear his voice this morning, let us not harden our hearts, testing and trying you. Help us not to turn away from you with evil, unbelieving hearts. Help us rather to receive this message as true, to hear it in faith, and to enter your rest through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there aren't a lot of Stephen King stories or movies that I enjoy these days, but one that I do is the Green Mile. Some of you probably thought Shawshank Redemption, didn't you? I could see it in your eyes. The Green Mile takes place in a prison. It focuses primarily but not exclusively upon uh, a particular prison block and uh, focuses mostly on the main character who is uh, Tom Hanks' character, of course, who is the boss of the block. During the course of this story, a new prisoner comes in by the name of John Coffey. He was convicted of killing a young boy. And what takes place on this prison block is that they begin to learn that John Coffey is fairly unique. It starts with a mouse that one cruel guard has crushed a mouse that was precious to one of the other prisoners, and then suddenly in John Coffey's hand, that mouse begins to move normally again. The shocker happens when the boss, who has cancer but is told no one, is grabbed by John Coffey and healed. 
by John Coffey. Miracles taking place in that place were unexpected. They didn't know his full identity. They didn't know who John Coffey really was, and that really came to light in increasing fashion. And here in the Gospel of Mark, the true identity of Jesus has become increasingly clear to his disciples. In fact, uh, Peter has finally said, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. That has been the whole point of the first half of the Gospel of Mark, bringing us to that point where finally the disciples realize he's the Messiah, but they don't quite understand what it means that he is the Messiah. With Jesus' identity as Messiah revealed, what does Jesus tell them? Well, first, as we saw months ago, Jesus told them not to tell anybody about this. But the second half of this gospel, the focus is not on who is Jesus, but what does it mean that he is Messiah? And so Jesus begins to teach them. Okay, Now he begins to teach them something about the Son of Man. Now, what's interesting is that they, Peter has just called him the Messiah, the Christ. But Jesus begins to teach them about the Son of Man, which was his favorite way of talking about himself. He didn't refer to himself in the third person, uh, like some famous people do. Uh, but, you know, if I were to say, well, Steve Cavallaro says, okay, only narcissists talk like that. Uh, <laughs> Okay. But Jesus talks about the Son of Man. And so part of what's going on here is that Jesus is knowingly connecting and equating the Messiah with the Son of Man from Daniel 7. That this figure that Daniel sees in heaven is actually the Son of David, who is the Messiah. They are one and the same person. But what he begins to teach about the Son of Man is shocking. Because he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. I just saw a typo that's in your notes. Maybe my uh, administrative assistant to fix that for me. But he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus begins by instructing them that he is going to endure great suffering. And a part of that great suffering is going to be the rejection at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And I say the Sanhedrin because they were made up of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The religious elite, both lay and professional, were going to gather together as one group, and they were going to reject the Son of Man. The suffering that Jesus is going to endure would include damage to his reputation, because he is going to be falsely accused of many things. 
Uh, but these things can be summed up in two charges that the Sanhedrin put forward. And, and these charges are recorded, not just in Scripture, but also in the records of the Sanhedrin that we have. Blasphemy and sorcery. A blasphemy because of who he claimed to be, and sorcery because they believed that Jesus healed all of these people by magic and demonic powers. And that Jesus was actually trying in their minds to lead people to worship a false god. So, his reputation was tarnished and sullied by these people. That suffering would also be emotional. Because Jesus, in addition to being lied about, was going to be mocked, he was going to be derided, he was going to be spit upon. The suffering that Jesus would endure would also be physical. As we see from his trial, Jesus was beaten while he was being mocked. Jesus also had thorns, this crown of thorns jammed into his skull as he was beaten. And so we see a full-orbed suffering of Jesus taking place at the hands of the Sanhedrin and then the Romans. The very leaders who had been charged with Israel's spiritual well-being, were the ones who rejected Jesus. They rejected his teaching. They rejected his miracles. And ultimately, they rejected him. He was not the Son of God. He was not the Savior. He was not the Christ. Oh, people of Israel, look somewhere else, is what they were saying. And all of this. But let's put this in context for a moment. In his baptism, Jesus identified with sinners. Not a sinner himself, he identified with sinners in his baptism. And that's part of what Jesus does, is that he identifies with people understands people, walks in a sense in their shoes. And so here, Jesus identifies with all who suffer wrong, wrongly. In other words, Jesus can be trusted in your suffering, especially when you suffer without just cause. Let's go back to the Green Mile for a moment. As I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned anyway, is that John Coffey was in prison because he was found with the blood of a young boy all over his clothes. And so he was assumed to have killed this boy. And what we discover uh, throughout the, the rest of the story is that Coffey had tried, knowing the abilities he had, to save the boy but hadn't succeeded in that instance. And so the blood was on his body precisely because he was trying to rescue the boy that someone else had tried to kill. And now here is coffee, unjustly convicted, tossed in prison to suffer. 
Jesus knows about that. Jesus has experienced that. Jesus can help us when we experience this. And so we can, we can recognize that Jesus identifies with us in his suffering. Well, it is good to know that Jesus identifies with us when we suffer. But Steve, isn't there more to this than that? <clears throat> yes. Jesus continues, but I don't want us to lose sight of that because that is a significant thing too when we suffer. Continuing in verse 31, we see that Jesus' suffering did not end with his rejection, but the Son of Man would also be killed. And of course, in light of this, he would be killed unjustly. And so, in the story of the Green Mile, where John Coffey finds himself is not simply prison, but death row. That's the block in which he finds himself in this prison, under the sentence of death for a crime he did not commit. Jesus, falsely accused, as I said, blasphemy, sorcery, Both of those for Israel were capital crimes. Not just sins, but also crimes. And of course, they brought him to the Romans to inflict this punishment upon him under the guise that he was going to lead a rebellion against Caesar. Okay? But if we're honest, and if we look at the rest of Scripture, we'll recognize that those are not the only capital crimes. But in fact, every sin is a capital crime. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so if we think about our memory verse for this month, and we, we think about what love is not... Our irritableness is a sin, and the wages of sin is death. We tend not to think of that, do we? That our irritableness is all that bad. That our hangriness is all that bad. That our impatience with Ken while he runs around with a ladder is all that bad. I was not impatient with Ken. Okay, But we don't tend to think of these things as being all that bad. And yet, if we're honest with Scripture, we recognize that these are, these are signs of the, or manifestations of a lack of love, and they're really that bad. And the wages of those sins is death. Jesus here in this passage does not explain the purpose of his suffering or his death. He's going to get there. This is a new message that's going to be repeated throughout the course of the rest of Mark's gospel because his disciples are struggling with this message, as we're going to see in just a little bit. But he does explain the reality of, of this suffering, he does explain the reality of this death that is to come. 
And so Jesus suffers not simply as an example, though he does suffer as an example. Uh, Peter talks about that in his first letter. Okay, And in fact, Peter talks about how when we suffer unjustly, we're to respond as Jesus did. That's a sermon for another day. But he also suffers the curse and the wages of sin that we commit. Jesus comes to us as helpless sinners. Jesus comes to us as godless enemies of the one true God. And he comes to us uh, not to kill us, not to slay us, but to be slain for us. So uh, yesterday, driving in the car with um, my new driver, and um, they picked some music, and it was playing, and one of the songs was from 21 Pilots, one of their favorite bands, and there's this phrase in this song that's at the end of the chorus, uh, because this is why God died. And it it talks about the realities of um, wanting to die. Uh, It talks about the the realities of sin uh, and betrayal and all of these things. And but but that existential reality of the of the songwriter. Now he understands. That's why God died. Because the sin, of, the sin of people, the destructive power of sin that can only be undone by the bleeding, dying Savior. Jesus is going to die the death that we deserve and that he does not. One way of putting this is that the incarnation isn't enough. It's not enough that God shows up in the flesh. But he must die in the flesh. The incarnation is necessary because he has to suffer, because he has to be rejected, because he has to be killed, and as we're going to see, he has to rise again. And all of this is done in the flesh. This is done as a man. This is done as a human being. Peter speaks of this, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In his body. The reality that that this is not something that's imaginary. This is not uh, just someone who seemed to be human, but someone who was really human, someone who really had a body and died, bearing no sins. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, we see Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the, the reality of the fact that a man must die for men and women to be delivered from sin. In other words, 
you need more than a teacher. And so do I, by the way. When I say the you, I'm seeing about me too. Okay? You need more than a teacher. You need more than a miracle worker. You need a savior to die for you. And Jesus continued. After three days, rise again. The Son of Man would rise again. In other words, his, his murder, his unjust execution is not the end of the story. God has the final word, and that final word is resurrection. The resurrection is just as important to our salvation as the suffering and the death of Jesus. We see this in Romans 5 and 6. In 5, it does talk about the fact that we are helpless sinners, that we're godless enemies, but that God loved us and His Son died for us. And in chapter 6, we see that because of our union with Christ, that His death was our death for sin. That our death for sin has taken place in Jesus, in other words. But not just that, but his coming to life again, his resurrection, means that we have been raised again to newness of life. And so uh, what Jesus goes through is not just something Jesus goes through, but if you are united to Jesus by faith, you've gone through it too and experience the benefits of it too. The Son of God, the Messiah, is a suffering servant that we need in order to deliver us from the curse. And so, as we look at John's Gospel, we should understand that the healings that he did, that the forgiveness that he proclaimed, that the exorcisms that he had done had a cost. They were not just done by divine fiat. They had a cost. It's strange that Stephen King would write a story with uh, some sort of messianic message in it. (laughs) Because he ain't a Christian. But because he's made in the image of God, he cannot stop with an idea of a messiah. And so this idea of John Coffey doesn't simply heal people, but he takes the burden upon himself when he heals people. And so at the end of the story, uh, when he's facing execution, when that day has finally arrived, and the boss wants to try and find a way to, to get around this execution, John Coffey says, I'm tired, boss. The process of healing all of these people has broken John Coffey. There's a sense in which the healings, the forgiveness, and the exorcisms break Jesus. Precisely because for their, for that mercy to be shown to these people, Jesus must bear the justice in his death. In other words, all of those things flow out of the death of Jesus. 
their benefits of the death of Jesus, which is part of why Peter says there that by his stripes we are healed, in which he is simply quoting from Isaiah 53. There is no forgiveness, for instance, without the shedding of blood, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so if Jesus is to remove the guilt of sin, or if Jesus is to remove the curse of sin, Adam's sin, that we experience in illness and disease or possession by evil spirits, Jesus must bleed and die. He is the sin-bearing sacrifice that alone can set us free from our guilt, from our disease, mostly not until the end, but also from the influence of the evil one. And so Jesus rescues us from sin through his suffering. Now, how was this message received by the disciples? Well, we see that in 32 and 33. We see that initially, well, before I say what, what Peter does, Mark makes it clear that Jesus was plain. There was no ambiguity. There was no uncertainty in what Jesus said. And it's on the basis of that that we see that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, and in some way, we can say, well, good for Peter. He took Jesus aside, right? <laughs> he didn't lambaste him in front of the other disciples or anything like that. But we have to recognize that Peter was so angry that what Jesus has just said, that he feels compelled to rebuke Jesus, his rabbi. the one whose teaching he had sworn to embrace. He now says, this I will not embrace. This is wrong. Jesus, you ain't got this thing right. It's possible that, as Sinclair Ferguson notes, and we'll look at next time, next week, that he saw the implications that Jesus was about to draw out for him and for the other disciples, but I think it's more likely that this is, or mostly this is, a misunderstanding of what it meant to be Messiah. What it meant to be the Son of Man. The Targum, for instance, which is a commentary, an ancient commentary on the Old Testament, saw that the son of David or the Messiah was a glorious figure. But when they get to Isaiah 53 and passages like that that talk about the suffering servant, it's not the Messiah, it's the people of Israel. 
And so uh, Peter has no way of grasping a Messiah who suffers. It's the people who suffer. It's the Messiah who's supposed to alleviate that suffering and in his mind most likely cast off the yoke of Rome. And so the idea of a Messiah who's about to be rejected and executed does not compute. He wants a conquering king, not a bleeding, dying savior who's also rejected. Peter, in a sense, might have overlooked that word must. Because Jesus says this must happen to the Son of Man. Not might happen to the Son of Man. It must happen. It is necessary for these things to happen, both by the providence or eternal decrees of God, as well as the prophecy that it would happen in Scripture. And so we see that in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about the gospel. He talks about Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God had revealed this, His will in this instance, already in the Old Testament. But there's also the reality of it must happen because of our need. Jesus, <laughs> on the end of a tongue lashing by his disciple Peter, turns and sees the other disciples. There's a little bit of ambiguity here. Was Peter their representative? Was he, because he is kind of impetuous and big-mouthed, is he kind of speaking for the rest of the disciples? We don't know. But what we do know is that as Jesus looks over, he wants them to see and hear what is about to happen. They need to recognize this just as much as Peter needs to recognize this. Get behind me, Satan. Odd phrase, isn't it? That he calls him the accuser. Today we don't call people Satan very often. We, we call them Hitler. <laughs> That's just essentially the equivalent. Okay? Uh, you know, all arguments eventually end up in someone calling someone else Hitler. <laughs> it seems, at least that way on the internet. Not necessarily in person. But Jesus is not just being uh, extreme here. He's pointing out something very important and that Peter is acting like Satan as he accuses Jesus as well as tempts Jesus. Because what Peter is tempting Jesus to do is to receive a crown without the cross. And if we go to the recordings of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness at the hands of the evil one in Mark 4 and Luke 4, what is, what, what is the focus of the temptation? To get the crown without the cross. 
just worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms, Jesus. A crown without a cross. And that is what Peter wants for Jesus, just like Satan did. And that's where Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. (laughs) It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so that is the drumbeat of Jesus' life, but it was not necessarily the drumbeat of Peter's. Think about this for a moment. Peter was so right in verse 29, and he is so wrong in verse 32. We are no different than Peter. We can be so right in our theology. And we can, just moments later, be so wrong because we don't love. We can be so right in our ethical standards and yet be so wrong in how we communicate them. We can be so right about who Jesus is and in the same way be so wrong about how we tell people. Or so wrong about guarding our safety. Jesus continues in his rebuke. This is interesting to me. Uh, My brain is funny. Maybe you don't think it's interesting at all. We know that Peter rebuked Jesus, but we don't know what he said. Mark does not think that's important for us. But what Mark knows is important for us is the rebuke that Jesus offers, because that's a rebuke that we sometimes need to hear. Not setting your mind on, you are, in other words, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your focus is all upside down, turned around and messed up. You're looking in the wrong place. You have a very human perspective. You're, you're rejecting God's perspective as revealed in the scriptures that you already have, Peter. And how often do we reject God's assessment of our lives, God's assessment of our circumstances, because we have a worldly, earthly, human perspective that dominates? We don't want to hear what God says, but we're very happy to hear what our neighbor might say, because our neighbor will go, oh, Steve, Steve, yes, that's very hard, Steve. Peter, essentially, in this moment, thankfully this moment didn't last forever, but at that moment is rejecting the work of Christ for his salvation and ours. Peter is, in a sense, forgetting the initial message that begins this gospel and every gospel. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter had begun to forget to repent had forgotten to believe, and was focused on the kingdom of himself. And that's where we often can find ourselves daily. 
We don't see what Peter does with this, but I imagine it's very much like Job in Job 40, where he puts his hand over his mouth and says, I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. There's really no response to what Jesus says, aside from, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong. And to be thankful that there is a bleeding, dying Savior who takes care of the fact that he was just wrong. And therefore, there's also a bleeding, dying Savior who takes care of the fact that you were wrong and puts you back right with God. On this basis, we don't need to live with that um, foreboding sense of guilt because Jesus has dealt with that. Uh, We don't have to live with this sense of I've messed up and there's no coming back because Jesus deals with it. What we do know is that Peter repented. And what's fascinating to me is that in Paul, uh, Peter's first letter, and four out of the five chapters, <laughs> he gets back to the sufferings of Christ for his salvation. In other words, this thing that he rejects from Jesus initially becomes the drumbeat of his message after the resurrection. It becomes, in a sense, the thing that he can't stop talking about. And part of my my prayer for you is that becomes something that you can't stop talking about. Not in the sense of, um, you know, I'm so glad he died for sinners like you, but more, he died for sinners like us, including yourself and that mess. And so, to reject the suffering of, Je- suffering of Jesus is to reject God's salvation. And that is a horrible place to be. Well, in this story that Stephen King wrote, The Green Mile, they thought that John Coffey was a monster who would kill the child. He was really a man with a gift to heal others, but he was put to to death unjustly. And as I said, that's that's a glimpse of what Jesus did. Jesus was not the Messiah Peter was looking for. Peter was looking for a Messiah with glory, not with a cross, I mean a crown. Jesus was not the Son of Man that the Messiah thought, uh, sorry, the Sanhedrin was looking for either. They rejected Jesus. And while Peter initially rejected Christ's suffering and death for sinners, he came to realize that that was the most important thing about Jesus. That was the thing he needed most in a Messiah, but he just didn't understand it yet.
Where are you with that? Not just intellectually. Jesus suffered. Yeah, sure. But are you committed to that Jesus in the sense of, do you recognize you needed that suffering? Do you recognize that's the only hope you have with respect to God? Is that suffering Jesus? Is that suffering Jesus important? Most important to you? Or is it just sort of a thing like, well, you know, the president's the president, whomever the president is. Or is it my president? Jesus is the Savior. The question is, is he my Savior? Let's pray. Father, we are so good at suppressing guilt and blame shifting. Um, all of that stuff. It's natural to us as sinners. Help us to be honest. Only you can help us to be honest about the logs that are in our eyes. Help us to see those logs so that we can cry out to Jesus to remove them. As we see our sin, help us to look to Jesus and his suffering as the only solution to that guilt and that shame that can haunt us. Help that to be real to us. Not just something that we have in our minds occasionally, but something that we trust in in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.